Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. And welcome to another episode of Undying Light. As always, I am your host, and as always, well, not always, because I'm usually, it's about half and half, I guess, when I'm joined with somebody. Been blessed to have a lot of good friends to uh, take some time out of their busy lives and join me, especially through the Attribute series. I thought that was a, a fantastic series, and um, and actually thus far on our Eschatology series, I've had quite a few guests, and uh, so I've been busy recording. Um, it's interesting because I'm kind of recording out of sync, or um, the, the way the series is going to actually debut. Uh, like, for instance, next week is going to be, as I record this, um, will be heaven, and then hell, and then we will get into the four views. Uh, and so I'm recording all this even before those episode, episodes debut, just to ensure that I have the right content, it's done in a, in a right and respectful manner, and uh, I've been blessed to have a couple people join me for those two episodes. The Bible Dingers joined me for the Hell episode, and Anthony from Speak Gospel Truth joined me for Heaven. Uh, both were fantastic episodes, and um, as this one debuts, the Amillennialist episode, um, which uh, Pastor Chris joins me on from Brooklyn, he uh, would go on to tell you that they actually prefer the term revealed eschatology. So uh, that was a great episode as well. I am very excited for you to uh, listen to that, um, but that won't debut until next week as you're listening to this episode. So I'm, you know, recording them all out of sync, so I'm trying to keep them straight in my head on how they'll debut, but uh, it's only August as I'm recording this. These won't actually come to you until September, so I'm just trying to stay ahead of the curve and uh, ensure that the editing is done right and we get you guys the right uh, content. So this is technically part two of a... You called two-parter? It didn't really work like that, I guess. I don't know. But the premillennialist is actually split into two views. There's the uh, dispensational 
and then there's the historic. So that's why I said, you know, like two-parter because they don't, they're not, uh, they're, they're, they're similar, but they are two different systems of eschatology. So I, I split them and, uh, you know, I went over the premillennialist, uh, dispensational view on last week's episode. Today, we're going to look more at the historic and how that differs from the dispensational. Uh, so I hope you guys learned an, uh, just a high level view of what these views are. Uh, there is a lot deeper roots to these. I mean, this just isn't surface level type views. They have um, a lot of depth to them. And even for this particular, the premillennialist view, there is still a lot of depth to it. And so I highly encourage you to, you know, if you are leaning this way and you want to, um, you know, really grow in your uh, viewpoint um, and understanding of it, there's a great book out. It's called The Millennium. Millennium. Uh, Lorraine Botner wrote it. Um, back in the mid-1950s, uh, it takes um, a look at all of the views, the post-millennial, amillennial, and premillennialist, and then also breaks down uh, all of the um, separate pieces and supports it um, all through Scripture. So uh, it's a great book. I've started reading through some of that to kind of help build my foundation and understanding of these views, but... Uh, there's just a lot of depth to it. And so I haven't used that exclusively as a resource for these uh, episodes as I am using these more or less to just try and bring you the facts of what they are. And then if they, if they, you know, based upon your hermeneutics, if you feel like this is a view that you would lean or grasp onto easier, then I encourage you to continue doing more research because again, this podcast, my Instagram page, anybody's podcast, anybody's Instagram page cannot be a substitute for further learning. Um, they are not the ultimate authority. We are not the ultimate authority on uh, any given topic. Some people may do a great job at uh, really digging into a particular topic and expounding it greatly. Um, for instance, just on these four views. Uh, each view could be done in a series in itself. And maybe after this series is done, uh, if the uh, desire from my listeners is there, I can go back and actually take each view and, and really dig into it deeper for maybe a, a three um, episode series per view. I, I'll leave that up to you. Maybe we'll put a vote out after these four air. Um, because again, even having Pastor Chris on yesterday is when we recorded before I record this episode, but uh, having him on and having him explain the amillennialist view through scripture was an extremely helpful tool, but it's still, um, I still feel like there's probably hours more of conversation that could have be, could have been had between the two of us and, we would still be probably not covering everything. And that's the beauty of scripture, right? The beauty of scripture is we can get at various levels, right? We can do surface level and just say, okay, this is what this verse is telling me. 
Uh, and then we can say, okay, what is this verse pointing to? And as and this is something that Chris will talk about a little bit deeper on the, the next episode. Uh, and then what, you know, is this verse actually pointing to Christ in his first coming? And then is this verse pointing to Christ in his second coming? So there's all these, there's, you know, three levels with scripture in that manner. Um, but we can get so much deeper into the context, the environment, the atmosphere. Why were these guys writing this? What was the purpose and premise behind it? So if uh, that is something that you guys would like me to do when we conclude the series, um, it could be something I do as a small, short uh, series before we go on to the next topic. So I'll uh, maybe put a vote out on my Instagram stories for a couple of days and just see what people's thoughts are. Um, but I want these shows to obviously air. So if you feel like you got enough out of them, then we'll, we can conclude and move on and get into the, you know, the next topic at hand. But if you feel like you were like, man, I really want to know more about this topic, we'll, we'll open that up as well. Because uh, these, again, are, are quite difficult and deep topics to to grasp. Uh, eschatology is a, is a topic that most people avoid simply because they just don't have, it's not on their plate to learn, um, and it's not a topic that generally comes up in church teaching, and, and most of the time it's just something that they don't know where to begin, and that was a lot of my, my issues. And as I mentioned in the last episode, when I first came to Christ, my biggest thing was uh, I'd probably fall in the dispensational premillennialist view because I read the Left Behind series, which is, you know, um, a very literal take on Revelation um, and uh, Daniel. So uh, as I mentioned in that episode, the literal take is they take the prophecy that John is writing about and understanding it as this is literally what John is seeing or describing. Uh, they don't take into account any metaphors or anything like that. So, you know, it, it's not a bad method of interpretation. Uh, it's just that is their hermeneutics that they use when understanding the text. And that's exactly what uh, we will see in this uh, the historic premillennialists. They actually use a little bit different type of uh, hermeneutic to understand the text. So we'll talk about that too. But the literal interpretation uh, is still present. They just do it in a different fashion, if you would. So before we really get into the um, what this view holds to, uh, again, some house cleaning things. This episode airs the probably second weekend, second Friday in September. But as always, the Logos promo is going on at minimum 10% off of a Logos promo, uh, Logos package. So check out logos.com forward slash undying light and download your copy. Again, that book that I mentioned early, uh, the Millennium, uh, is in Logos. So you can get it and read it on your phone. You can read it on your computer, your tablet. That's the beauty of Logos is you can get a lot of great theology books depending on your denominational view or, or you can even experiment across any platform, right? You can get, if you're looking to learn more about Roman Catholicism, you can get books based on that. So there's all these different things. And the only reason I suggested that is simply because um, if you want to learn an opposing view or something that uh, you're studying further to maybe... Um, preach against, 
Roman Catholicism, I believe, is uh, littered with false teachings at this juncture uh, and have been for many centuries now. Another topic. Rabbit hole, not going down it. Logos.com forward slash Undying Light. Get your copy. Second piece, if you guys want to continue this, uh, supporting this ministry, please jump on any iTunes or any um, uh, podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, uh, subscribe, follow, and if possible, leave reviews, share it with your friends, your family, your church. Let's get, I, I want to, would love to get this platform to grow. It's not about me though. It's not about the numbers. It's all about getting this message out to people who have questions, people who are looking to get into, especially with this particular series, you know, what is the end of times? Um, but, you know, we did the attribute series and I think that was uh, a fantastic series to help people understand the character and nature of God more. So please, if you want to help continue supporting this ministry, share this, um, share clips of it, put it on your social media and spam it out there. If you want to look and support this ministry financially, patron, uh, we're there for as low as a dollar a month or as much as you want to give gets you access to all the insider uh, content that I handle, uh, which is early episode releases a week in advance. That's why I record a month prior. So that way the uh, people who support me financially get a copy of this episode a week in advance and uh, they can listen to it and critique it um, and provide feedback, things like that. Uh, Cause I give them the freedom to help this ministry grow. On top of that, the Roman study that I'm doing, they get um, early release notes to help critique and maybe, you know, maybe clarify. Like last night, as I record this episode in the middle of August, I sent it to somebody and they actually said, hey, I don't understand this piece. Can you clarify it a little bit better? Great. Went in, clarified it a little bit better before it went live to the public. So those are things that I do with my patrons, um, amongst many, many other things. So dollar a month gets you access to that and more. So, um, and, and honestly, guys, the, the support that comes from that group of people is tremendous. I love every single one of you. Um, on top of that, we do Bible studies. We're going through the book of Mark. And after that, I think we're going to do Galatians. So that is a huge benefit. I feel to, for me to give back to, um, the community that supports me financially. So that's the housekeeping issues, and now let's get into the show. So today's topic at hand is going to be historic premillennialism. And as I mentioned in the first episode, this goes pretty close to the dispensational premillennialist. However, we have to understand that these are, in fact, two different systems of eschatology. Uh, and just to clarify, there are a few you know, glaring differences. So to show that historic premillennialist, and to keep from saying that over and over again, I'm just going to say HP. So HP teaches that the church was in the forevision of the Old Testament prophecy, while dispensationalism teaches that the church is hardly, if at all, mentioned by the Old Testament prophets. The HP teaches that the present age of grace was predicted in the Old Testament. Dispensationalism holds that the present age was foreseen in the Old Testament and thus is a great parenthesis 
in history introduced by the Jews rejected the kingdom. Uh, introduced because the Jews rejected the kingdom. Historic premillennialism, HP, teaches a millennium, a millennium after the second advent of Christ, but is not concerned with clarifying other epochs of history. Usually dispensational teaches seven divisions of time. The present age is the sixth such dispensation, and that's actually an interesting view to understand the dispensational uh, premillennialist view. Um, the dispensationals will look at the time across scripture and they divide it into seven ages. Uh, and currently we live in the sixth age. The last one, uh, the millennial age, is after the second coming of Christ. That is the historic view. But from the dispensational, the uh, end of times would be the seventh such age. HP is post-tribulational, whereas dispensational usually embraces the pre-trib view. So understanding this, um, what will happen in the dispensational understanding is Christ will rapture the church, then there's seven years of tribulation, and then um, Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom on earth. The historic view pulls the rapture to after the tribulation. So the church will move through the seven years of tribulation and experience that. So the premillennialist view of the end times is different in two ways. Uh, historic, premillennialist, and dispensational. The Bible contains many prophecies about the future, with the New Testament speaking extensively about the return of Jesus. Uh, Matthew 24, such as the book of Revelation, uh, 1 Thessalonians, which we talked about in the last episode, um, are just a few references to the second coming. And there's many more that we can get into. Um, so looking at the history of this, and we'll go into a little bit more detail on historic um, premillennialist as we unpack this. Uh, it was actually one that was held as a majority view for early Christians. They um, understood and read the scripture in this manner, and uh, the historic view was held by a lot of predominant early church fathers. Irenaeus, uh, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, uh, were just to name a few. So uh, it's not just something to brush off and say that, you know, it's a foolish thought, because some of these early church fathers held to this view that this was, in fact, the way that things would unfold at the end of times. Uh, the premillennialist uh, historic view teaches that the Antichrist will appear on earth during the seven-year tribulation. Uh, once that happens, that's when the tribulation will begin. So as soon as the Antichrist comes on the scene, that is the kickoff to the seven years. Then, after the seven years, there's the rapture. Uh, and then Jesus returns to rule for a thousand years, and the faithful will then spend eternity in New Jerusalem. So, once Christianity became the official religion in Rome, right around the fourth century, many things began to change, uh, and actually, the acceptance of premillennialism started to fade. Uh, and at about this time, interestingly enough, the amillennialist view started to come on the scene. Now. 
during this time frame was when the Roman Catholic Church was essentially started to come into light. This was a, the amillennialist view or amillennialist view was one that they uh, put forward. Now, interestingly enough, and we should note that during this time frame, the 4th century, the Roman Catholic Church has not gone completely off the rails yet. So that's another view um, to get into uh, church history, which uh, if you're looking for a good series, the 2000 Years of Christ Power is probably one of the easiest to read church history books I have gotten my hands on. So check those out. That will actually help you break down a lot of the things in church history. Uh, I absolutely loved reading them. So the historic premillennialist, premillennialist view is one uh, that actually gets a lot of support out of the Protestant community, um, mainly just because of the way the system itself unfolds, whereas we will encounter um, the tribulation and then we will encounter the rapture after that, but the church experiences that, um, and it's kicked off by the Antichrist, the single Antichrist coming. Um, so again, it takes a, you can call it a semi-literal view of Revelation, because it is looking at how things um, unfold, but it places the rapture after the tribulation. So one of the things that I've noticed uh, in doing some of this research is the favored method of interpretation is actually a grammatical historical method. Now, I want to explain that a little bit because that could help potentially understand what that means and how they read um, scripture. So there is a uh, great website. I'll try to include it. I'm not going to read through all of it, but there's a ton of great content here. I'll just read kind of the highlights. Um, it's grammatical historical hermeneutics for lay readers. And i uh, just read a little bit on it. Uh, this article says the historical critical method assumes that, that words and expressions have a relatively stable meaning during given periods of history. Therefore, we begin by taking what we can determine as the normal everyday meaning of the words, phrases, and sentences to the, ex to the extent possible. In other words, our interpretation must be must correspond to the words and grammar in the text in a reasonable way. Otherwise, the interpreter could assign meaning in his own without objective control. The Bible would become a horoscope of vague sayings we try to plug into our lives however we are able. So then I have a couple bullet points here. Most of the Bible can easily be interpreted by simply taking the language either in the original or the translation in the usual way, noting John 3.36 and Acts 1.1. In other words, if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. In other words, if the text makes sense to you in its original setup, then seek no further understanding of the text. A plain sense of reading should not be confused with the literistic interpretation. We should allow for figures, and they should allow for figures of speech, as in Mark 1.5 and Luke 22.19. If a passage, passage contains symbols or a special literal genre, this should be indicated in the text either by contextual cues or because symbolism is required in order to make sense of a text. Most symbols are explained by the Bible itself, Revelation 1, 9-20. through 20. 
So interesting method at interpreting scripture. Um, I may have used this uh, in a couple of manners, um, depending on how the text aligns. I guess uh, as it's something I was I mentioned to Pastor Chris on our episode is, you know, I'm still very new in the hermeneutics series or in the like the process of understanding it. Um, and I think what we have, you know, I guess if I were to apply my understanding to the text and I don't, I'm probably going to cake over the, the actual terms itself, but I look at a text and understand what was the literal meaning of this text as one aspect. But I also have to differentiate between what is prophecy, what is history and you know, understand and break down the different genres of literature. Um, so that's how I interpret text. Again, there's, I'm sure there's a fancy theological name and I'm missing it this morning. My apologies on that. So a couple other things to note about the HP view is the Israel and the church. The church is the actual fulfillment of Israel, the kingdom of God present through the spirit since Pentecost to be experienced by sight during the millennium after Christ's reign. So uh, once the millennial reign of Christ comes, instead of experiencing the presence of the Spirit um, essentially in ourselves, we will actually be able to see the Spirit of God. Uh, the rapture, the saints living and dead shall meet the Lord in the clouds immediately preceding the millennial reign. So again, the uh, opposing view is the uh, dispensational, which puts the rapture at the beginning. Uh, the millennium, Christ will return to institute a thousand-year reign. The millennial millennium will see the reestablishment of the temple worship and sacrifice in resemblance to Christ's sacrifice. So again, very similar um, in the way that uh, that the, both views kind of unpack themselves. They just place the rapture. Uh, in a different fashion and have a different way to understand uh, the text. So now let's look at uh, maybe a little bit better interpretation. We're going to kind of uh, go through, we've got some notes here on my screen to um, broaden this understanding and hopefully it will help clarify a few pieces. So again, understanding this view, they... Uh, get back to interpretation, because I, I think that's one of the most crucial pieces to understanding eschatology in its whole. What is the hermeneutics used? What method do you apply to the text? That gives you basically all of the answers you need to understand the end of times. Now, again, using a literal interpretation isn't bad. It's just a method that has been used. Uh, to uh, apply a literal interpretation to prophecy um, can create some interesting views. And especially if you read through the book of Revelation, if you apply the literal view, then you've got you know, John describing Jesus in this literal fashion with you know, bronze feet and a face of fire, things like that. Um, those are more metaphors. But that does not take away from the individuals who hold to uh, 
the literal interpretation method. Now, we have to understand too, for you know those who don't, then it's not a matter of beating them down and telling them that they are wrong. Eschatology is probably not even you know a secondary doctrine. In my opinion, I feel that it's there is an understanding to to say as a Christian, I understand that the end of times will happen, and this is my viewpoint on how it's going to happen, and I that that's it, right? There's no there's no need to go in and, and beat somebody down. Oh, you're you're a dispensational, and you're therefore wrong. No, that's just their view. Now I do say that based upon hermeneutics. Um, if you're dispensational, that does have an impact on how you read and understand the rest of Scripture outside of the um, the eschatology portion, because you're going to read Scripture in, in a more literal sense. When it comes to it, as long as you hold to the fact that Christ came and died for sinners, for your sins, and he rose from the grave to be the perfect atonement, we can discuss everything else as secondary doctrine, right? The, the primary essential doctrine is Christ and him crucified. His perfect atonement is for our sins that we could never atone for. Everything else past that, is, in my opinion, would be secondary doctrine. and Or even, uh, I think it's called tertiary doctrine, or you, know, you get down these different levels of things that are just not as significantly important. Eschatology is important because it is scripture, but it is far from being essential. And therefore, if you hold to a dispensational view, historical view, a postmillennialist view, or an amillennialist view, and that is what you have clung to your entire time, so be it. However, don't go and beat somebody down for having an opposing view. It's great conversation. And it's like, and, and I think eschatology can be beneficial to understand other opposing views. And that's why I'm doing this series, trying to be as unbiased as I can, because I don't, I don't want to beat somebody down for having a view I don't hold to. And at the same time, I don't want somebody to beat me down for having a different view than them. So that's why I give you that little side piece there. So the historical premillennialist interprets some prophecy in scripture as having the literal fulfillment uh, while they interpret others and demand a semi-symbolic fulfillment. So they, so that's where I was mentioning earlier is they get kind of this dual interpretation. They have this grammatical historical understanding and then they do a literal understanding as well. So it, it almost feels like in some prophecy they'll pull literal and some they do a semi-symbolic, which um, would basically advise for a deeper understanding into what text these individuals would deem to be literal and what text uh, would deem to have a symbolic. There is an example here. Um, the sealed judgments in Revelation 6 are viewed as having a fulfillment in the forces of history, rather in the forces of power by which God works out his redemptive and judicial purposes leading up to the end. So they view that Revelation 6 has a uh, semi-symbolic fulfillment already in history. Rather than the belief of the intimate return of Christ, 
it is held that a number of historical events, examples the rise of the beast and the fall of the prophet, those must take place before the second coming of Christ. So they are um, putting up conditionary events in order for Christ to return, right? So we have to have the rise of the beast, which is the Antichrist, and then we have to have the rise of the false prophet, which is the, in the premillennialist view, would be the one world religion. So those two events must take place before Christ can, in fact, return. The second coming will be accompanied by the resurrection and rapture of the saints. So those who are dead will be risen, will be resurrected, and those who are living will be raptured. And this is, again, pulling from 1 Thessalonians. So their interpretation of 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18 is a pinpoint of where and when it'll actually happen. The historical view puts it after the tribulation. This is the event that will inaugurate the millennial reign of Christ, the Jewish nation, while being perfectly able to join the church in the belief of a true faith in Christ, has no distinct redemptive plan as they would in the dispensational perspective. So, interestingly enough here, the historical view actually does not give the Jew the Jewish nation a specific or separate plan uh, of redemption. Again, this is a view while being perfectly able to join the church in the belief of the true faith in Christ, they have no distinctive plan of redemption. So they're able to come to faith in Christ, but there's no separate plan. Uh, the dispensational view gives them a separate plan. Uh, and that is actually encapsulated more in a dispensational understanding of the ages and of scripture. The duration of the millennial kingdom is relatively unsure. They, there's no specific time frame. It could be either literal, literal uh, as Revelation 21 through 6 states, um, as a thousand years, whether it's a literal or a metaphorical so those, that's basically the synopsis of the post-millennialist view. Um, it's not a an extremely deep uh, view itself um, based upon the understanding of where the rapture happens and in contrast to the uh, early, or in contrast to the dispensational, it just plants the rapture um, at the end. It does have a few differences. And uh, interestingly enough, I mentioned earlier in the show uh, some of the early church fathers, and I just came across this one here, that Polycarp was another proponent for the historical premillennialist view. Um, they... Uh, believed and taught that there was a visible kingdom of God upon the earth after the return of Christ. Without question, the best and most influential historical premillennialist of late is Greg Eldon, Greg Eldon Ladd. Though the work of Ladd historical premillennialist gains scholarly respect and popularity among evangelical and reformed theologians since he had the right application of the redemptive historical significance 
of the first coming of Christ and of the New Testament age. Other historical premillennialists include the late Walter Martin and John Warwick Montgomery, Henry Alfred, and Theodore Zahn, who's a Greek New Testament specialist. So I just a little bit of side note there as I'm kind of looking at uh, additional information um, on these. Now, I do want to note here, uh, I had uh, some cons, pros and cons on um, the, the premillennialist in itself, right? This is not looking at the historical or dispensational. Um, so I do, I do want to mention these before we close out this little segment. Uh, so many Christians favor the literal interpretation of Revelation. This is a pro. Premillennialists argue that Revelation is not simply about the apocalypse. Rather, it is about eschatology, the plan of God, about redemption, and about the proper theocracy, and about eternity. It is about principle, principled ends, but also not an elimination of the earth. There will be a new one. This comprehensive list of events gives people hope amid evil, injustice, and pain. We can look ahead knowing what the end will look like. There is a purpose and a plan for what and how Jesus will get rid of evil uh, on the earth, and we can look forward to that. So that's a pro. And going back to um, what I had mentioned on the pre-millennialist episode, uh, there was like 11 steps to the unfolding of the of the premillennialist view of eschatology. Um, in the dispensational, the rapture happens first, then the rise of the Antichrist, then the seven-year tribulation. In the historical view, they place the rapture at this juncture, and then the coming of Christ. So they just move the rapture. Um, then the battle of Armageddon, the judgment of the Antichrist, and the binding of Satan, resurrection of the dead, the estimated of a thousand years reign, the release of Satan, and one final rebellion, the final judgment, and then the new beginning of heaven and earth. So, um, obviously, there are theologians who will um, have issues with the way this brings out, but for the, I would venture to say for most common lay people, this is a comforting view of the end of times because it gives you a um, an understanding of how the events in Revelation unfold. It's you know, a literal take on it. And most people may read Revelation and, and understand it from a literal perspective. And it clarifies how things will end. And obviously, it always ends with God's victory. So how the events unfold, uh, to most people, don't really matter. But what matters is the victory that Christ will have at the end and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal state. Um Again, whether you get raptured out, I think that's, uh, you know, obviously everybody would want to experience a rapture before the seven-year tribulation. Um, the historical view would be that we live through the tribulation and uh, encounter a intense persecution and suffering and possible death, uh, which is something that I think wishful thinking or most people would probably venture to uh, argue, or try to argue against that they would want the rapture at the beginning. Um, but I think if, as we look at that understanding, it, you know, if, if you don't hold to those views and you hold to maybe an amillennialist view, um, again, I, I think either way we experience 
the end of times because we are living in the end of times. It does not matter whether it's the seven-year tribulation or just in current state of the world. We experience persecution and suffering as Christians. There are Christians across the world that are dying today for their faith. And so no matter how we view it, we are living and experiencing persecution and suffering. So we're just not technically, at least in the United States, targeted for our view systems. So now let's look at some of the cons to premillennialism. Now, uh, I do want to make note that these are just some things, again, that I found on the internet. They're not necessarily my uh, individual cons. Um, I will make note of those when I do get to the end of the series, and I do actually discuss um, where I think I fall and uh, and then provide some feedback on why I come to that conclusion. So the premillennialism cons, uh, critics will argue that there's a lot of hermeneutical gaps in premillennialism. Sam Storms talks about the problem that sin and death continue even after Jesus comes back to establish the millennium. What does it say about Christ's reign if bondage and corruption remains? Shouldn't death be defeated in the return of Christ? 1 Corinthians 15. There's also a lot of questions on why Christians are raptured before the tribulation, if at all. This sort of interpretation can lead to disengaged and dis disinterested view of the end times. If Christians think that they're going to be around, they're not going to be around for any of the end times events, why should they care? Finally, Dispensational premillennialism views on modern-day Israel have taken a substantial foothold within American politics, often complicating uh, current discussions in the Middle East. So actually, quite valid uh, cons and questions that should be arisen and answered if you do hold to these views. Why uh, do we see these gaps? Um, and I guess my biggest piece I would also go on and, and try to challenge is um, if we think we're going to be raptured out of this before the end of times, then, you know, what, what are we, what are we really trying for? I mean, what do we care? We're going to be gone. We'll just live our lives. We'll, we'll share Christ and that's it. But we, I think should have an understanding of the end of times. We should have an understanding of what these four major views are. And I think we should try to learn what all of the, all of them are. Uh, not just what your particular hermeneutics lead you to hold on to. If you hold to a dispensational premillennialist view, then understand that, build a foundation of understanding and what your hermeneutics lead you to understand and read and, and build that foundation. Same for the historical view or the postmillennialist view or the amillennialist view. Take some time, invest into studying scripture, read some uh, other books on these views and why that other people hold to them. Don't just shake off the other three and become haughty in your own view because none of these views in by themselves are probably even correct by themselves because they all take a different approach, a different hermeneutical approach to understanding the text and the scripture. So, that is the little semi-two-part piece on premillennialism.
again, I, I try to uh, capture what the Disby side looks like and the historical side looks like, uh, and then the differences between the two. So I hope that you get a better understanding of this view of the end of times. The next one we're going to cover uh, is going to be amillennialism, and I'm joined with Pastor Chris out of uh, Brooklyn, Pastor Chris Gardner, and I will make sure that I have his information and um, uh, up. He's a very brilliant individual. I was very blessed to have a great conversation with him, and I'm very excited for you to hear uh, why he is an amillennialist, and, or as he likes to say, he is a revealed eschatologist. So we'll unpack that further next week. And then we will wrap the this phase up with the uh, discussion on post-millennialism, and that will come in two weeks, and we will discuss uh, all of that and how that unfolds and unpacks. Uh, in contrast to the other three, because we want to ensure that we understand how these are lining up with uh, the other views and hopefully provide context for you to understand and walk away after this four series was saying, wow, I really think I line up with this view. Now, I said it on the beginning or middle of the show that if we get to a juncture and these were a good high level understanding of the views and you want to go deeper and you want me to unpack them extensively, then at the end of the show, um, I will, we could do that. We can maybe pick two of them and unpack them deep and do a short multi-show episode um, over those, right? So if we decide that we want to dig deeper into amillennialism and postmillennialism, then I'll do, you know, maybe five or six shows on those. So uh, I'll put that up in the story after these air in hopes that it will uh, draw some some further discussion and uh, maybe entice and deepen our understanding of these views. If you want to do a deeper look at the premillennialist versus amillennialist, we can do that as well. I'm not, I just said post an A just for, for the sake of it. So, ladies and gentlemen, that is the premillennialist view of the end of times. I am blessed and excited to have worked through this with you. Again, nothing uh, incredibly deep yet, but... Uh, these are just understanding how they view the end of times. Now, when we get into the actual scripture phase of this series, we will start to understand how these views can be um, cultivated out of, say, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the book of Revelation. So we will see those really come to life uh, reading through that text, and we'll make notes like, this is what you know, a dispensational may view this text as happening, or they may say that this text says about this event. So that's what we're going to look at when we get into that phase. This section is just a uh, understanding of how they view the end of times and uh, what events will take place and how they will take place. So ladies and gentlemen, I thank you for your time and I hope this was edifying. If you have any comments, complaints, concerns, feel free to leave them in my DMs on Instagram. Until next week, God bless. Keep shining.
This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.